Hello, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amina Yakin, and I'm the director of the SOAS Festival of Ideas. It is my great pleasure and honor to welcome you all to this final day of the Festival of Ideas. We've had some fantastic conversations this morning on CEDAW and on um, South Asian multilingual traditions. We are here to today for the debate, which is the, on decolonizing our highlight of the festival. When we started the SOAS Festival of Ideas on Monday. Um, it's a research-led festival, which is obviously uh, not just started on Monday. There was very long, there's been a very long germination process to the point that we've got to. But when we started, we were just beginning the conversation about decolonizing what it means across disciplines, across regions, across global and local contexts. And I think if you've been following any of the events and are panel discussions, masterclasses, you will have seen a creative and critical engagement with the kinds of conversations that we are having and the necessary knowledges that inform this kind of critical and exciting um, uh, knowledge around climate change and from climate change to Black Lives Matter, what might be the connections that we need to be thinking about when we think about decolonizing knowledge? And I hope that the festival has given you that kind of um, opening and that kind of discussion that you are looking for and that we need to be thinking about from capital to conflict, from colonialism, education and sexualities. In this global COVID-19 pandemic, we are living in politically challenging times as the economic and health crisis close in and states look to protect themselves from poverty, hunger and growing inequalities. We, as um, Professor Adam Habib spoke about the flow of knowledges, the positioning of the global south and, the, and how where we are located here in the global north in a city like London, you know, what are the systems of power and structures that we need to be rethinking and reimagining? In such times, the far right has been emboldened and the left faces a backlash. The summer, this summer has seen Black Lives Matter's protests following the murder of George Floyd and protesters being punished by an anti-left backlash by Donald Trump. The conservative government here in the UK has joined forces with the culture war. The culture secretary, you know, this connects with heritage and repatriation, one of the themes we've been talking about in the festival, the culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, has told museums that they risk losing public funding if they take down statues as a result of pressure from campaigners. From a personal perspective, in the lead up to organizing this festival, I invited the British Library to take part. And they too were worried about the risks that came with, the, with attaching themselves to conversations about racist ideologies and reparations. So when we really have to think about the structures of funding and to what extent are we free in this, in this environment that we live in today, when it comes to education, the Department of Education has been told not to use materials produced by anti-capitalist groups. The Prime Minister has accused the Labour Party of being on the side of those who pull statues down. The Equalities Minister, Kemi Badenoch, has this week shared her views about why she thinks Black History Month is a problem. Expressing that slavery is the history of America, she reminds us to look at Nigeria to learn about how to deal with statues. 
teaching race for her is a principle against <clears throat> um, <clears throat> higher education. And um, she talks about the pernicious ideology and blackness as victimhood and whiteness as oppression in schools and how this is spreading in the NHS trust in schools and even the civil service. And um, these are the things that are that we need to confront that when schools are being told that if they teach critical race theory, they are break breaking the law. Where are we when it comes to wokeness and political correctness? Identity politics has really come to a head where this government has taken charge of the narrative by placing at its helm um, black people and Asian people who um, uh, we've seen what uh, Kemi has said and we also see what the Home Secretary Preeti Patel has done with regards to guarding the borders of the nation state and fiercely targeting immigration lawyers. So we, re we are in difficult times. In this debate, I am delighted to welcome Professor Margot Okazova-Ray, Professor Emerita San from San Francisco State University. She is an activist, an educator, working on issues of militarism, armed conflict and violence against women examined intersectionally. She has longstanding activist commitments in South Korea and Palestine, working closely with Duray Bang, my Sister's Place and Women's Centre for Legal Aid and Counselling, respectively. She is a founding member of the Kombahi River Collective. Um, and uh, while uh, I jumped into the introductions, I completely forgot to ask the audience that we are running a poll on whether decolonization of educa higher education is possible. So you have, there are three options for you. Yes, neutral, no. And while I'm continuing with the introductions, please can you um, add your vote? And this will close when the speakers start debating. So I'll just give, give it, I think that's, um, that's uh, flashed up on your screen right now, I hope. Um, <clears throat> so the opening arguments will be made first by Dr. Margot Okazavare in favor of decolonizing higher education. And Dr. Okazavare will be <clears throat> followed by Dr. Brian Elaine, who teaches sociology at Goldsmiths University of London. He has written Radicals Against Race, which was awarded the British Sociological Association's Philip Abrams Memorial Prize for the best new single authored sociological text published in 2002. More recently, he published Narrative Networks, Storied Approaches in a Digital Age uh, in 2015, and Geek and Hacker Stories, Code Culture and Storytelling from the Technosphere with, in 2018. He is currently researching geek culture in the global south. What a fantastic array of books there. Um, we have on the second round of arguments, the first speaker will be Dr. Jamila Hussein Shanan, who is a scholar, an educator, an activist, and public speaker dedicated to social, economic, and political justice. Her work examines matrices of oppression and liberation, particularly institutionalized and structural supremacy, anti-Black racism, and settler colonialism. Dr. Hussein Shanan teaches at the graduate level on the intricacy between language, power, and injustice and critical race theory. Um, <clears throat> I think our um, 
sorry. And for our last speaker, we have um, Dr. Kehinde Andrews, who needs no introduction, uh, but I will um, just very quickly introduce you to him. Kehinde Andrews is Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham State University. His research focuses on resistance to racism and grassroots organizations. His latest book, Black to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century was published in 2018. He also wrote Resisting Racism, Race Inequality and the Black Supplementary School Movement in 2013 and is editor of the Blackness in Britain book series with Zed Books. His next book, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, will be published in February 2021 by Penguin. Um, Kehinde has written opinion pieces for outlets, including The Guardian, Independent, Washington Post, and CNN. He's founder of the Harambi Organization of Black Unity and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to all the speakers and to thank them for giving up their time on a Saturday to join us. And I also have to mention and acknowledge uh, my partner in, in crime here <laughs> with uh, Stephanie um, Gourin, who is in the background and the wonderful tech team, Kumi, who is part of it and Danny, who have really helped to put this whole thing together. So I will invite now the four, uh, these speakers to start their um, representations. Just a reminder of the format. The opening arguments will first be made by Dr. Okazavare, followed by Dr. Brian Elaine. We'll have a little, uh, then the, these will be followed by um, Dr. Jamila Hussein and Dr. Kahinde Andrews. We will have a short break and then both sides will pre present rebuttals. And at this, then we will have um, the um, opportunity for the speakers to respond to the arguments made by the opposing side, and I will then pose some questions to them. During this time, I invite you as the audience to please put your comments and questions in the Q&A function that shows up at the bottom of your screens. And without further ado, and um, I hand over to uh, Dr. Margot Okazavare. Welcome and thank you. Thank Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm having a little. Okay, greetings to you all. And uh, I am in Berkeley, California. Oh, it's funny, I can't see myself, but I guess that's okay as long as other folks can. Um, I am. Uh, speaking today from Berkeley, California, and I'd like to acknowledge that I am part of the occupiers of the land of the Ohlone people. Uh, and in the U.S., uh, what we've begun to do is really acknowledge our role as part of the settler colonial project. Um, and I also want to situate myself as um, being connected to to Japan, that's where I was born. And that's another uh, imperial uh, and colonizing state that colonized many areas of Southeast Asia uh, in uh, the, um, 19th, uh, the early 20th century up to the mid 20th century. 
And so one of the questions when we're thinking about decolonization is, what is our own social location? Uh, and what does that have to do with our relationship both to the colonial project as well as the decolonial project? And I was um, chuckling a little bit uh, when, um, Amina, you, were, you mentioned what sounded like a South Asian surname person you know, pushing up against immigration and kind of the ironies and contradictions uh, in which we are situated. So I just want to acknowledge that uh, before I start. Um, so I am in favor of decolonizing the academy, um, but in a, in a slightly different way. So the, the decolonizing suggests a process of undoing and reversing things done in the past, or we, can, we may think about them as uh, things done originally, right? Um, taking of the land and resources, of course, brutalizing and dominating human beings and the natural environment. And I think in some ways, equally important or perhaps even more important, um, although I hate to you know, make that kind of distinction, is destroying the language and all that was sacred to the people, um, really to break their spirits, right? Uh, and I'm also um, thinking about, you know, things I've heard that the British Museum has more sacred objects, uh, uh, Egyptian objects than there are in Egypt. And I don't know if that's a true fact or false fact, but nonetheless, it's a good metaphor to think about who controls the sacred, who controls knowledge, who is considered sacred and who is considered knowledge producers. And of course, we all know about the intergenerational impacts. And most important for our conversation today is thinking about the role that European and US academies and intellectuals played in both the colonization processes and as one of the primary generators of the justifications and rationalizations such as creating using science to prove the inferiority of particular beings. Then of course, there's the neo-colonial, the current everyday practices that perpetuate the original and expand its influence. And I'm thinking about the ways in which the educational institutions are part of the hegemonic power, right? That is so necessary uh, in these times, uh, although, we're seeing now in the US, uh, in Nigeria, in many places, and um, Amina, again, you mentioned um, you know, what's happening in Britain, um, the brute force that's being applied to quell dissent. And so hegemonic powers you know, can be thought about as sort of a soft kind of power in the sense that that's the kind of power that gets us to submit, to say that our interests are, yes, aligned with the elites. Um, and hegemonic power works in such a way that it, it always gives concessions. And one of the places that it concedes things is in the academy. So for example, um, the creation of the various studies that didn't exist before. I'm thinking particularly of 
things like um, gender, women, and feminist studies, or ethnic studies, indigenous people studies, right? Those came um, as a result of struggle within the academy, right? But they're concessions because we see that the, the, fund, the foundational values, approaches, and um, the dominant structures of the academy have not changed, right? And so how do we think about ourselves as those in, often in those areas of study uh, as both change makers and in some ways as examples that, you know, things are working, right? There is democracy because we have bodies like mine and uh, Jamila and other panelists here uh, in, in the academy. Uh, so I think uh, if we're committed to decolonizing the academy, I think we have to think about at least the following questions um, and consider them deeply. Um, first of all, you know, how must we think about and conceptualize the overall purpose of education from primary to tertiary? Second, um, what, what must we understand about the multitude of ways that neocolonialism is functioning and manifesting now and the ways in which we as academics are implicated in that process, right? Um, and all of us in some way embody some contradiction, right? On the one hand, we consider ourselves progressive. Some of us consider ourselves leftists, uh, radicals, however, but in direct opposition both to the state quite often and certainly uh, pushing up against the values and mandates of the academy. But as I mentioned before, on the other hand, we also um, are in a contradictory position insofar as we benefit enormously uh, from our locations. And then um, when we think about the purpose of higher education, specifically the academy we're talking about now, um, how does what does decolonizing look like? But more than that, if we think about the bigger purpose, what's the role that we can play in creating a new society? because I think decolonization, undoing and so forth isn't enough, right? And we can't even undo much of the harm that's being done already. And so in that case, when we're, as we're thinking about a vision of a society we'd like to create, um, how can we think about processes such as transformative justice about which I'm learning uh, something from um, Somebody, um, a professor, Circes Mendes, who's at um, Cal State University Fullerton, who is using that frame to address sexual assaults uh, within the academy, which is a really a unique project uh, in the United States. Uh, and then finally, um, how do we think about our educational endeavor as part of human development, right? not just intellectual development, but the development of the whole human being. And I think any kind of transformative justice, any kind of restorative justice, right? any kind of decolonization right? must involve some kind of 
um, developing of ourselves as human beings, considering that the colonial project fundamentally has been about decolon uh, dehumanizing both the colonized and the colonizer. Uh, I don't know how much time I have, but I think I'll just stop right here anyway for now. Thanks, Margot. Yeah, you're on time. I think we can move on. Ryan, I think you're on. Thank you, Margot. Yes, I, my, my camera seems to be frozen. Let me turn it off and then on again. Okay, all right. Okay, it's, it's unfrozen now. Okay, so okay. Uh, shall I proceed then? Shall I go straight on? Yes, yes, please, over to you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, this question uh, asks the audience to vote for or against on a rather complex issue. Um, hopefully we'll have a better outcome than the Brexit referendum of 2016. Uh, given the chosen topic and Oxford-style debate, uh, I suppose a person might be expecting to see someone make a sincere and committed presentation of the right conservative argument against decolonizing knowledge. Well, I'm not that person and I don't propose to make that argument. What I do propose to do is to ask if there are good reasons to question the project of uh, decolonizing the curriculum, uh, what we do in universities, decolonizing knowledge more generally. And it's worth saying at the onset that dismantling self-serving knowledge networks built on worldviews of the powerful uh, has happened before. Let's take the case of, of the scholarship on the role of new world slavery and early capitalism and the related issue of the ending of slavery. A debate opened up in the 1940s in the wake of the publication of Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, and that debate continues to this day. Now, few would introduce this topic without referring uh, readers to Williams, to CLR James, and more recently to Robin Blackburn and Catherine Hall, to name uh, just two people who've contributed to a rich body of scholarship. There has been a shift in the historiography of capitalism and slavery, but not a complete shift of paradigm. Endogenous arguments for the emergence of capitalism and self-congratulatory takes on the ending of slavery continue to exist alongside the kind of radical reworking of these events as we see in the work of uh, recent scholars like Hall or Blackburn. So let's get out of the way some bad reasons for questioning decolonizing knowledge. And I characterize these as bad because I think they're ill-intentioned or made in bad faith. Let me just say parenthetically that um, I might be accused of mischaracterizing some of these as bad reasons for questioning decolonizing knowledge. But as I said, I'm not the person to perhaps give a fuller characterization. These bad reasons are ill-intentioned because they sometimes aim to stoke division and often display no commitment to working toward a supportive and inclusive knowledge space. Moreover, their bad faith, some arguments against, and they tend to come from the right, arguments against decolonizing knowledge because they deliberately misconstrue some of the aims of the decolonizing project. Three types of bad arguments against decolonizing knowledge. One, that it is the thin edge of a censorious totalitarian wedge. Two that these projects are motivated by a hatred of, 
white people slash men slash Western civilization. And three, cultural Marxism. Don't know what to make of the third one. These are all bad arguments. Uh, and they're bad because they're made, uh, they, they come out of a place of bad intentions uh, and or bad faith. So are there, so, Brian, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but we seem to be losing you. I don't know if it's your connection is stable. Okay, let's let's try again. Uh, we we don't have your picture, and we your voice has kind of went completely. Okay, have you got me now? I've got your voice. I don't have your video. Oh, that's odd. Oh dear. But we, we can we can do without we can live without the picture as long as we have your sound. Okay, have you got have you got me clearly in there? Yes. yes well, we... I mean, there's not. It, I'm just a talking head anyway, so okay. I'll just proceed then. Okay. So I had just got to setting out three bad arguments against decolonizing knowledge, and I said the thin edge of a censorious totalitarian wedge, a motivation uh, of hatred of white people, men, Western civilization, cultural Marxism. These are all bad arguments and we needn't bother with them. Are there good reasons to question decolonizing knowledge? To qualify, I want to suggest such good reasons must be well-intentioned and made in good faith. Well-intentioned is that all parties should seek a supportive and inclusive teaching and learning environment and good faith <laughs> because uh, good arguments for questioning decolonization should start by a recognition that projects to decolonize knowledge have identified real and in some cases urgent issues. How might we go about questioning knowledge decolonization from a place of good intentions? Well, let's start off with the observation that bodies and ideas count in decolonizing knowledge. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to take a cue from the previous speaker, Margot's mentioning of the importance of considering bodies, because we are all embodied beings. Bodies and ideas count in decolonizing knowledge, but how do they count? We know that some people have been excluded from knowing subjectivity on the basis of their bodies. So bodies must count in a project. How do bodies count? Whose work is, who teaches, who learns? If only bodies are to count, how can we achieve coherent networks of ideas given the diversity even among well-intentioned persons working on decolonizing? Okay, uh, Brian, Brian, I'm really sorry. I'm going to, I'm interrupting just to say that your sound is causing a lot of problems because we can't hear you properly and it's going in and out. So would it be possible that we jump to the next speaker and then come back to you? Yes, let's do that. Shall we do that? And then if you could do your presentation again, I'm really, apologies to everyone. It's just connections are a little bit um, difficult to always manage fully. So we'll, we'll work with Brian in the background to, to kind of fix the problem. And in the meantime, uh, Yam Yamila, Jamila, would you be happy to start? Welcome. Okay, hi. Um, I am Jamila Hussain. I'm uh, with you from Palestine, from Ramallah. I just returned here after 23 years in the United States, and I am reliving colonization in a totally different way than I have lived it in the United States, where I was part of uh, the settler um, um, position, and now I am back to my indigenous colonized position. So um, I'm gonna try to keep my remarks very simple and build on what um, uh, Margot already shared. 
Um, uh, in, in order for us to discuss decolonization, whether it's higher education or any, any other uh, aspect, uh, I think it is imperative that we connect it to uh, imperialism and capitalism. Capitalism led to imperialism, which in turn created colonization as the colonies uh, played a very important uh, role in imperialism. And we see this today in higher education. I cannot imagine a conversation about decolonizing higher education that does not also take into account um, our fight against imperialism and um, capitalism. They go hand in hand, they support each other. One of them cannot exist without the other at this juncture. And what we are witnessing in the last couple of decades with the globalization and the rise of technology and the role that technology is playing in the world, the task in front of us is, um, is quite uh, a big one. It's not an, an easy thing to do. But I think we all agree that our world is ruled by colonial logic, colonial rules of governments, and colonial uh, language. And uh, for us to decolonize higher education, we, uh, I, uh, I uh, suggest that we get a better understanding of the role of the university. The universities and academia definitely, um, as Margot mentioned, um, have been instrumental in producing um, what they call knowledge that is scientific and objective, that served no other purpose other than uh, justifying and um, um, supporting colonial capitalist uh, forms of uh, oppression, including the dispossession of indigenous people in the, uh, for example, in the lands of the United States, and the dispossession of uh, many other groups of indigenous peoples that were uh, kidnapped from their countries in the continent of Africa and brought to the United States. So in the most physical sense, the university is built on stolen land with stolen labor and built with money that uh, profit that came out of human life. Um, that needs to be acknowledged. I don't know that we are at a point I, um, uh, of reversing or undoing. It, it is done. But let's start with acknowledging. So one of the ways that I imagine decolonizing universities is let's tell the truth. These are not viewpoints. These are truths. This is history. They know it. We know it. So we start from there. Not as an add-on. Not as in my students go take all the history classes that white supremacist Americans have designed and then come to my class for an alternative viewpoint. Let's fight for that. We need to tell the truth. Our students, young people need to know the truth. If the media and the uh, Hollywood and uh, are inventing whatever they are inventing, academia is supposed to be the place that actually tells the truth. So let's start with that. Uh, it is also important to think of the university run, the university is run as a colony. When I think of the university, I sometimes imagine the factory and sometimes see the colony and the connection between factory and colony. So if you look within the university, for example, um, you rarely find anybody in a university campus that's not there either paying tuition or being paid to provide some sort of education to those who are paying tuition and fees. 
the, the exchange within the university campus is not simply an exchange of knowledge. This is a profitable enterprise that has become more so obvious in the last couple of decades, where tuition and fees for students are increasing um, uh, like uh, in, in disproportionate ways to the standards of living and, um, and uh, salaries. And then a whole industry is built around a system that necessitates a college degree to be uh, able to have any chance in terms of jobs and salaries and careers. And around it, there is a whole system, a whole industrial complex that has been built around the academy, whether it's the real estate with uh, providing or not providing housing to students, the banks, the governments themselves, the loans that they give to the students with the interests that they provide. And the way the academia is organized, it's not really accounting for the fact that not everybody has a grandma that left them some fund somewhere where they can just go to school and all they have to do is study. So that needs to be analyzed. We also look at uh, faculty within universities. Uh, faculty either don't care about students and what they're doing is chasing funding, including funding that comes from and for military and corporate purposes. And the more the faculty brings in money, the more the faculty becomes a star and therefore promotions and salaries and etc. And now they teach less courses and they can do more research. So now they are cited more. All of this cycle that happens is, is, is happening in contrast with particularly faculty who are not white and are not subscribing to the uh, white supremacist and colonial mentality of knowledge production, end up the ones teaching the most courses, taking care of the students of color, of the indigenous students, of the black students who are in, their, uh, in, in that university absolutely left alone, who have to work twice and three times as hard to be acknowledged with a very small percentage. So the, the university itself, if we compare it to the, to the colony, is about profit. It's about producing knowledge that serves the military, surveillance, um, is investing its money. And I am particularly referring now about universities in the United States, which has been my experience lately. Um, uh, a lot of universities are investing money and making profit out of the mass incarceration of African-Americans and black people in the United States. And so I, I don't wanna limit the discussion of uh, um, the university as, uh, as a colony to knowledge production without uh, also mentioning the ways in which all the other systems and structures, the logic, the colonial logic runs through the blood of academia, not only in its final product, but also in the determination of uh, ranking, what is a good university, and because they call themselves good, now they charge um, much more money. It's the, the, the corporate, uh, connection with the university, um, it also adds to, to questioning and um, doubting the, the credibility of the university to pretend to create any knowledge that's useful to any of us, whether indigenous, black people, and other people of color, whether women, whether people who are not economically uh, um, in, in a stable position, all of that. So in my mind, Going back to decolonization, in order to decolonize um, higher education, 
we need to start by telling the truth. We need to start by um, finding ways for, uh, uh, for the elite to own up to the crimes against humanity that they have committed. Then we can sit down and have a conversation about what would decolonization look like. It's a process, a very, very long, arduous process. It's going to be one step after the other. Now we have Black studies, Indigenous studies, women studies, and now we also witness how these have been co-opted and etc. So one step at a time, we build towards that. And I know my time is up. Thank you. Okay. Thank, thank you, Jamila. Thank you very much. We've had the two... Um four positions by Margot and Jamila. I would I will now invite um Kehinde Andrews to take the floor and Kehinde and Brian, just so you know what the pressure is with regards to the poll, decolonizing of higher education is possible. We have 58% for, 20% neutral, 23% no, and we will have the poll again at the end of the debate. So over to you. Excellent. So shall I go now, Mark? Shall I, shall I go now? All right, Brian, you're, you're on and we have yes. a picture. Excellent. Have you okay, got a clear yes, picture? Yes. Audio's clear? Yes, very, very clear. Excellent. Welcome. Okay. Excellent. Right. Thank I'll you. have a, a second go then. I have the advantage of, of having heard uh, what both sides have to say. So, um, well, I want to say that um, my approach here is to consider um, build my comments around considering wh whether there were any good reasons for questioning the project of decolonization. But before going further, I just want to start off by saying that uh, we, we have a history of such projects and I want to take the example of the debate around the origins of new world slavery. Um, going back to the 1940s with Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, that debate continues to this day um, and um, it, people like Robin Blackburn and Catherine Hall have built upon it, but the counter-longer-established arguments around the en endogenous uh, origins of capitalism in Britain and the self-congratulatory arguments put forward for the ending of slavery continue to exist alongside. So we've had a shift. It's not a complete paradigm shift. That's one of the reasons why I think we need to be careful in terms of what we think we can achieve around uh, decolonizing. Let's get out of the way then some bad reasons for questioning the decolonization of knowledge. And these are bad reasons because they're made in bad faith and they're ill-intentioned. And I'll have, I've only got time to quickly characterize three of them. The first bad argument is around the thin edge of a censorious totalitarian wedge. It's not really a good argument against uh, decolonizing knowledge. And then there's the other argument that these attempts are motivated by hatred of white people, of men of Western civilization, also not a good argument. And then there's a cultural Marxism argument. You hear these trotted out a lot. I don't think these are good arguments because I don't think they come from a good place. I don't think they're often well-intentioned. So are there good reasons to question decolonizing knowledge? I think there are. And to qualify as good reasons, these must be well-intentioned in that the people involved should seek to foster a supportive and inclusive learning environment, and they should be made in good faith. 
which requires that people involved recognize the projects to decolonize knowledge have identified real and in some cases urgent issues. Still, I think that could usefully pause and consider some reasons as to why we might want to question the project of decolonizing uh, the curriculum, what we do in universities and knowledge. We have to concede at the onset that bodies count and both prior speakers have addressed that point. I don't need to go over it. Bodies do count and bodies count partly because people have been excluded from being knowing subjects uh, on the basis of their bodies. But how do bodies count? Do they count only in terms of whose work is to be used, who teaches, who learns? All of these matter. But consider the following, if only bodies are to count in a decolonizing project, how then can we achieve a coherent network of ideas given the diversity of ideas that come with these bodies? On the other hand, if only ideas count, then a project of decolonization is vulnerable to bad faith critics. And these bad faith critics will say, well, if only ideas count, then we'll be able to, to produce ideas attached to people in a way that the effect would be to re-exclude persons who were excluded in the first place on the basis of their bodies. So we want to aim for a judicious mix of bodies and ideas, diversity of bodies, diversity of ideas. We still, though, have to confront the problem that identity standpoints enable us to see some issues better, but they obscure other issues. We need to address that. I do not see this as a decolonizing articulation of bodies and ideas together on its own is going to be sufficient to give us the epistemological ground we need for the kind of successor social science that we need today. And we need a successor social science to address some of the issues raised by other speakers. It is not enough to speak from the standpoint of the formerly excluded in and of its own. We also are called upon to assess competing knowledge claims on grounds other than the standpoint of those making that claim. We therefore have to guard against uh, the notion that from our, our embodied standpoint, we thereby have an intuition, and from that intuition, we can arrive at secure and safe knowledge. We have to confront our ideas um, against, we have to place them in confrontation with a reality that is subjectively perceived, but has many elements of objectivity. So in closing my remarks, I want to say that from a critical realist perspective, yes, decolonizing, de decolonizing knowledge, decolonizing the university is an important, it's a worthy project, but some of the ways in which it has to date been realized carry particular weaknesses, weaknesses that have to do with a too quick attempt to ground knowledge claims in the identity and position of formerly excluded persons without the necessary further step to address questions of how do we assess competing knowledge claims. Objectivity as critical into subjectivity, and that's the kind of objectivity we want to go for, not the old fashioned outdated notion Objectivity is critical into subjectivity, entails taking seriously well-intentioned and good faith challenges to decolonizing knowledge. Decolonizing knowledge is a constant process 
which we must pursue with a combination, I suggest, of enthusiasm, cool indifference, healthy skepticism. Just before I close, I, I just want to say that with respect to uh, making arguments around decolonization and opposing it, I want to return to where I began. It's, it's important that we distinguish between bad arguments which come from bad places, bad arguments against decolonizing which come from bad places, and good arguments which come from a better place and ask us to think more deeply about what we wish to accomplish. Yes, and it is my own sense that sometimes there is a confusion on the part of people involved between what are good arguments against and good searching questions and bad arguments and bad searching questions. Uh, projects of decolonization are just that they're projects. They don't have an end goal. They're not finished. And they have to be constantly open to, de to debate and diversity. And even amongst those who've been excluded from knowledge networks on the basis of their bodies, even amongst those, there's a huge diversity of, of opinion. And we won't all have agreements and we have to come to a settled understanding of how we're going to resolve some of these differences um, so as to further what I think is a worthy project, which is to, to engage with questions of, of decolonization, but as I say, with a mixture of enthusiasm, sometimes cool uh, regard, and sometimes skepticism. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, and I invite... Kehinde Andrews to take the floor. Professor Andrews, are you there? Hello, hi. Hopefully you can hear me. Yes, yeah. I'm going yeah, to All right, perfect. All right, so, um, yeah, you know, I'm going to take a slightly different approach, and I'm just going to agree with absolutely everything that the other side have said, right? I mean, actually, the other side have kind of made the argument really clearly here. If you look at just the extent to which the university is a racist, neoliberal, project. There's a quote which every time I have I talk about this topic, it's a quote which I wish I had come up with, but I did not. Um, it was Deepa Nayak who organizes This Is Not A Gateway, uh, where she says the university is not racist, the university is racism. And actually, if you look at, listen, if you listen to what uh, the first two speakers uh, said, they kind of outline this case very, very, very clearly. The university is the site which produces the knowledge um, that essentially secures the idea that I'm not a fully human being. Actually, none of us on the panel are fully human beings. Um, it's the university knowledge, so-called science, which um, legitimates slavery, colonialism, etc. Um, the university is one of the most important institutions for how we for the, how we understand racism and the racism that we have today. Like it really is. Like it's just it's you, you just you basically can't separate racism uh, from the university. One of the things that we um, we still even we like we work here and we and we like to um, I think we still like we have far too much hope and faith in these institutions right because because we have had some critical scholars in universities we still have critical scholars in universities that does not change what the university is um, you might have some uh, progressive police officers but it's still the police force right it's still you might it's, there's always people who kind of try and buck against the systems that they're in they don't change what the systems are. Um, and so the, my base, the basic point I'll make here is that it's not possible, right? Decolon it sounds like a nice idea, decolonization, but once you understand what it is, how could, how could, you, how could you possibly 
um, decolonize the thing which is morally, the university is in some ways more important than any other institution in, the, in, in creating the very foundation for the racism which we're still experiencing and fighting against. Um, so I was the first speaker at Margot. I had set these three questions, and this is, this is essentially the problem. When you think about what is the purpose of our school system, and I do call it a school system rather than an education system. Uh, we are schooled into a particular way of understanding the world from a particular perspective, which is certainly embodied. Um, and that, school, that schooling runs through into university. University is no different. Again, we, we, we tend to think of ourselves as a bit more freer, et cetera, et cetera. And we often criticize the school system, but um, all the knowledge and all the problems in the school system come from university. So if you think about what the purpose of education of the school system is just broadly, it is to maintain the status quo. And when you understand the status quo is fundamentally based on racism, then the purpose of the university, therefore, must be to perpetuate racism. That, that's what it's there for. That's what it has done historically. That is what it continues to do. And there's very little reason to believe it would ever do anything else. Um, this ties into the second question about neocolonialism and the practices of neocolonialism. And um, universities, again, are hugely such, such an important part of neocolonialism. If you think about, um, I'll give the, the brief, the, the quickest example is, is always this, right? Like there is a body of economic thought which essentially devastates the underdeveloped world still today through the IMF, World Bank, et cetera, et cetera. Where is this taught? This is taught to people in universities. This is taught to people from the underdeveloped world who come to universities and take this knowledge that's there to drain their resources back. Uh, back into their country. This can't work without the university. The university knowledge is such an important tool in neocolonialism, and the universities as actual institutions are hugely important and, and, and probably ever more so, ever more so now than ever. Um, and so I just push back this idea that academia is the place to tell the truth. No, academia is the place um, to reproduce racial inequality. Now, again, I work in universities, so this is a slightly ironic argument to make, right? But the reason I'm pushing back on this term decolonizing, because if we're honest, we're not really talking about decolonizing most of the time. What we're actually talking about doing is diversifying. Diversifying is fair enough. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a perfectly good project. There is certainly limited uh, sets of knowledge and limited sets of knowledge claims. Uh, we certainly need more black, um, more different bodies in the institutions. We certainly need diverse reading lists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but that is not decolonization. Decolonization is to tear down, it's to do something different, it's to overthrow, to turn it over. You can't do any of those things when the system which produces the racist university is still intact, right? So what we're actually arguing most of the time for is to diversify, which again is a, legitimately, is a legitimate project, it's just not a decolonial project. And we've seen some of the logics of decolonize, I'm sorry, diversifying play out in the States. So. I mean, we have the first black studies course in the UK, right, Europe. Um, and if America's 50 years ahead, 50th anniversary of black studies um, last, last year, 2020, last year. And, you know, you've seen it's become part of the university, lots of black studies, lots of, like, lots of really critical thought, really engaging stuff. Yes, if you look at the role of the black studies plays in the universities, it's not much different than most other, than most other disciplines. The 50th anniversary edition uh, the Black Scholar, the oldest Black Studies journal, uh, titled itself, What Was Black Studies? Because essentially what's happened is lots of people got jobs and uh, became relatively comfortable. And, and look, I know I have a lot of friends in African-American studies, so uh, this, is, this is not a critique of everything, everyone. But if you look at the, the broad position of what has Black Studies done in the last 50 years in the States, it's essentially become um, this part of the furniture where you see it at all the elite institutions. And it hasn't transformed what the university is. 
uh, the university is, is in some ways worse um, <laughs> with neoliberalism than it was uh, when black studies started. Um, and so that's, I guess, my, I guess that's my, my, oh, I always push back against this idea of, of decolonization because we're actually talking about uh, diversifying. So I'll end on this. Well, the, what I always say that we're trying to do. So obviously, again, I'm sympathetic to every argument that's made on the other side. I contribute agree. Uh, just believe that the project has to be different. Uh, with Black Studies, we say that what we're doing is we are colonizing the university. Right, we, we're not trying to change it. Uh, nothing that we can do within the institution is going to radically alter what the institution is. Uh, in order to get the course in the first place, we had to play neoliberal, uh, we had to play so much neoliberal politics in the first place to even get it. You kind of wonder uh, whether it was worth it in the end. Um, but certainly, what we have said look, is the institution is the institution. Um, there is very little we can do. The ivory tower is the ivory tower, is defined. That is what, what gives the university its the, the, place it has in society is the fact that it's defined by whiteness and that's the that's the point of it so were you to take a university that wasn't create a university that wasn't defined by whiteness it wouldn't have the institutional power that we would that we would want to do things with right so what we say is we're trying to colonize the university which means understanding it's a terrible institution a terrible logic a terrible place and those terrible things um but it is also an institution that has massive amount of resources uh, it also institution that has a massive amount of status. Uh, it's an institution where we can put lots and lots of resources that w w are useful and take them into uh, communities of practice. And that's for me what Black Studies is. We don't change it. We don't decolonize anything. We what we have managed. What we have hopefully managed to do is to bring a radical community engagement of of of, of the way of understanding, which is not a university thing, but like we don't need to look to universities for the knowledge that we need. The knowledge we need has existed for, for a long time. It doesn't in universities. What we are doing is we are bringing that relative um, knowledge into the university space in order to benefit things outside of the university. It is to colonize the university because it is simply impossible to decolonize these, te these terrible institutions. And I will stop. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much um, to all the speakers for strong arguments on uh, from ranging from how we deal with soft power, hegemonic power, the academy, the relationship of gender, ethnic studies, the diversity of bodies and uh, settler positions, decolonizing. It's, uh, there are so many things to, to unpack, you know, the project of decolonizing not being finished. What kind of understandings are we looking for? What kind of knowledges are at play? What are the diversity of bodies and ideas? And what actually are the neoliberal politics of the higher education institution and how it is funded? Is it even possible to talk about decolonizing uh, with all of that? So thank you all for a rich range of positions. I'd like to now invite uh, the panelists, um, the debaters to uh, offer their rebuttals. So uh, Margot, please, can I invite you to kick off the rebuttals? They're two to three minutes each. Yes, thank you very much. Wow, this is an uh, amazing conversation. Thank you all. A um, couple of reactions. First of all, I think we really need to think both and not think about, think and not think about bodies, and rather think about institutions and processes. I'm thinking about places like Liberia and Sierra Leone, where formerly enslaved black folks from the US went or were sent, supported 
to colonize those places and and you know what those places look like and the civil wars um you know and who are the elite so can we think about the the decolonial project not just about bodies right the second point um i want to make is the per- that universities i don't think can be decolonized but what universities offer especially with uh, people like us in them you know we, uh, again, again we occupy contradictory sp- um positions but i think there are ways in which the universe we can um exploit the 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 resources of universities universities have ways of creating spaces right and if we think about our roles and the university as places that um as resources to employ to create change in the wider society i think that's the best that can be done with universities and you know i just retired from 40 years and that's the conclusion uh that that i've come to and that is uh not a small thing i think that's a very important role and i want us to uh keep that in keep that in mind uh and finally you know we're we're giving these uh intellectual rational arguments but i think one of the questions is what kinds of emotional and spiritual spaces do we need to create so that the the project that we're trying to engage in the transformative project engages not just the mind but also our hearts and our spirits how do we decolonize our hearts and our spirits so that we can fully engage in the decolonization uh, project and then i'll just make one more point related to the first point you think about black studies started in 1969 at san francisco state there was a conference i believe a couple of years ago uh, called blackness in europe and one of the disturbing things i heard was that some part of that was dominated by african american scholars that much that's been written about blackness in europe you know was done by african american scholars so that point has to do with this question of power who has the power to say what's real what's knowledge and it's not just one particular set of bodies but it's a it's a um, ideology institutions and then the ways that bodies get deployed in service of that thank you Thank you Margot. Shall we go in the order then that we um started? Jamila, would you be happy to um give your rebuttal next? I would like to hear the rebuttal from um maybe um one of the other viewpoints so that it's not me and Margot one after the other and then Okay. Would that be possible? I think that's a very uh possible disruption what what yes way to go Jamila <laughs> thank you Brian and yes his... I'm I'm happy to go next if if the moderator will activate my camera okay tech team please can you uh, activate Brian's camera okay I think I think it's on good so I want to um I do find myself in an unenviable position here because at, at first I thought who's going to make an argument against the de- decolonizing but I think I also want to to suggest that there is a great deal of value in 
universities as they are, albeit with many caveats. And I want to take the case of the work of Hilary Beckles, who's the uh, vice chancellor at the University of the West Indies, and, and he was a tutor of mine many years ago when I was a student. And um, I think over the last 25 years, he's worked very hard to have got to the stage where uh, he's organized a commission around various countries in English-speaking Caribbean, connecting both universities and civil societies to make a case, which the British government has refused to address, but to make a case uh, for reparations um, and to talk about the modality of reparations, etc. But I think it's important to realize that what underpins that case is Professor Beckel's work as an historian. And that was very traditional grunt uh, work through, through archives over many decades, uh, the kind of work that Catherine Hall's also been in, in, involved in. And it just seems to me that um, while there's much that is flawed with universities as they exist and a great deal has to be done, they do present the possibility to do things which is not clear that we would be able to do otherwise. It's not clear how we'd be able to assemble the evidential base to make a credible claim around the question of reparation without very traditional historical scholarship. So my comment here is not so much a rebuttal, but I thought I just wanted to, 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 get, that, to, to get that point in. I wouldn't necessarily want to uh, uh, throw out universities altogether or even argue for some revolutionary change. Um, decolonizing is probably going to be about diversity because I think it's too much all at once to think that we could uh, overturn the institution in a revolutionary way and it's not clear what are we going to replace it with. And in the meantime, uh, we've got uh, projects such as this one around making the case for reparations, which come out of a particular critical take on very traditional university scholarship. And I'd be very wary of uh, putting that to one side. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brian. Um, Jamila, would you be happy to go next? Yes, very happy. Um, just a, a few comments. Um, I use the word decolonize intentionally. I don't use colonization to describe any form of oppression, including uh, racism and anti-blackness, which is a product of the colonization of what is now known as uh, the Americas. Uh, colonization is a question of taking as much close to absolute control of a land and its people. And it includes the constant continuous attempt to eradicate the indigenous people physically and symbolically. So when I say colonization, this is what I mean. And when I say decolonization, I refer to stopping that process and start moving the world in a direction that doesn't allow for that to happen ever again. So um, um, Dr. Kehinde Andrews, yes, if the conversation is about diversifying, I would have a totally different conversation to have there. I am talking about decolonization. When um, activists in Boston started a movement and called it Occupy uh, Boston, as a person living under military occupation, for me, this is not a language that I use um, 
just like that because I want to say oppression. No, it's not just oppression. It's not any kind of oppression. It's not about more or worse. It is about a very particular kind of oppression. Patriarchy is its own uh, system. Colonization is its own system that encompasses many of those. So just like um, the authors, and I'm not going to remember their names, remind us that decolonization is not a metaphor. Also, that statement itself has become a metaphor. So I, as an indigenous woman of the land of Palestine, when I say colonization and decolonization, that's what I mean. The other piece is, I agree um, when uh, uh, at the end of this conversation, I'm starting to see uh, some, some connections that are not yet clear in my mind. Just like when people in the United States uh, talk about reforming the police, and if I understood you correctly, uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, the academia cannot be reformed. And if that's the argument, I need to think about it more. I, I don't think decolonizing the university means um, helping them to find any moral compass or value. Colonization is by nature a very violent, immoral, inhuman enterprise. I am not at this point in my life interested or invested in helping them regain their humanity. I am interested in protecting our lives, our humanity, our culture, our knowledge, our wisdom, and our children and our next generations. Now, whether or not they agree to decolonize, people who have power have never agreed to give up power. And when they have uh, uh, spaces for uh, 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 colonial studies for critical race theory, it, it just gives them a little bit more of a uh, social and moral capital to be able to argue that they, that they are doing something about it. And the last point I just want to say quickly from experience is what we can do is decolonization is not going to happen overnight. And I defend my right to not have a plan from A to Z. I have the right to know my compass. And once we start working, we will continue finding ways as long as we're doing it, always in connection with our communities and always linking ideas to practice and asking ourselves, what is this research for other than people building careers and opportunities? What is this research for, for my community? When the university decides whether to approve my research project, when the IRB comes from the university and my people who I am researching and I am studying with, I don't have a say in that, that these are small steps that we can start taking and maybe in 100 or 200 years, there will be generations who will find the way in ways that now we cannot imagine because we're so deep into a colonial project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jamila, for the passionate rebuttal. Um, last but not least, Gehinde, are you there? Can we ask for your rebuttal, please? Okay. Um, you know, I, I understand that I am 100% um, sympathetic with the argument that was, just, that was just put across. And I'm in that position as well, right? Like as somebody who works in a university and tries um, very hard um, you know, do like critical stuff and engage outside of the community. I guess the question I would pose is, and this is a general question, it's not just a university question, is the thing that's really changed over the last what, 40, 50 years, 60 years, well, since like, you know, we had civil rights movements. And the only thing that's really changed is that these institutions have opened up enough space so that we can now be in them. So for example, like 50 years ago, you and having me and Brian and all of us, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. Like we, we wouldn't be able to be in the university um, because 
racism literally outlawed it, right? So we couldn't have been in the university. And now we can be in the university. And the question I would ask is, is that a good, is that, has that benefited the things which we really need to do, right? If we're saying that we need, and this is why I think the term decolonial is so important. If we are arguing for decolonial, decolonialism, that's a radical politics. That's a politics that seeks transformation. And the question I would ask is, the incorporation project, which we are all part of because we were all in the universities, does that incorporation project, is that, is that something which helps true decolonization or is it actually something which detracts from true decolonization? And this really, so when I think, and, this, and again, this is a, something I work through all the time. Because if I think about the black studies, and I said black studies here is, is new in the university, but not new, it has a long, long history. Um, and we didn't just rely on knowledge in the university because we weren't in the university. So, for instance, campaigns for reparations, this, that knowledge has been around for a long time. It had nothing to do with universities. Uh, campaigns for change, who's my, fa- my favorite person, intellectual, is Malcolm X. But that, but didn't even finish school. Um, if you think about the UK, Claudia Jones would be really important. You know, we had a different, we just had a different set of knowledge. We ex- we understood that that was um, kind of that more activist grassroots community knowledge was the way, that was what, what infused our movement. And what's happened over the last 50, 50 years, because we've become incorporated into the university, we started to look at university knowledge as as legitimate, and I just say I don't, I don't really think it is. And I think part of the question we if if you really want decolonization, if you really want true radical transformation, it's just not going to happen in the university. And I think, and that that is the contradiction and tension that we have because when we're part of it, whether we like it or not, when we're part of it, we are supporting uh, and perpetuating and working within a framework uh, which is which is from the university. Which I, and again, I don't see that changing in any meaningful way. Uh, because that's what the role of the university is. And I do think there should be, it's a genuine question that I have a lot, is why are we in the university? Wouldn't it be better to produce uh, the knowledge outside if we really want transformational change? Thank you. Thank you to all the debaters for their impassioned and informative positions. And I think what I'm getting from the debate is that Decolonizing is a philosophic project, it's an intellectual project, it's an activist project, and that there are some disagreements between the debaters, between the philosophic and intellectual project and the activist project, and also with regards to the global uh, flows of where people are located, that that becomes more uh, urgent in some places, and perhaps we can appropriate certain positions in other places. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I had some questions as moderator that I had prepared, and I think these have been answered in the debate, but I just want to push this a little bit forward. Um, and and um, I mean, one of my questions was, what does it mean to decolonize knowledge in a globalized world? And I think Jamila has really responded uh, to that in a very specific way with regards to the location of Ramallah and where she's speaking from and Margot as well. And and I'd sort of like to push um, um, Kahinde and Brian a little bit more on that. <clears throat> and I really like the discussion that's emerged about reparations. Uh, and I find that fascinating in, in the debate in the um, against decolonizing position that that is being um, that is being discussed and put forward, because to me that that seems very much a conversation about the decolonizing of knowledge rather than against it. But perhaps I might not have understood it properly. So I might ask you to 
to think about, to get sort of respond a little bit to that. And I also want to extend your arguments then with regards to the university and and we've and you've talked about some of you have talked about the curriculum with uh, the black studies curriculum and the interventions that have happened in in the US and the UK with with regards to scholars and um and and the sort of leaders around those particular projects uh but but you haven't really mentioned the movement that's also come from the students with regards to decolonizing the curriculum. And I wondered what you think about that. Do you think it's a good idea? Is there a resistance to it? Um, I mean, is, is the institutional space ready for this? Um, are we doing it? Should we be doing it? So could I just sort of put that to the panel? Starting with Margot. Uh, uh, the video is still off and I can't do anything about it. Um, okay, thank you. Um, I think it's important to remember that, um, at, least in, at least in the US, that what we're now thinking, uh, reframed as decolonization, was really um, uh, uh, around the curriculum, really started you know, when the students pushed for Black studies at San Francisco State and at the same time, women's studies at San Diego State, the same year, right? And that the, the curricular transformation was always an activist project that was connected to communities. Just to reinforce um, Jamila's point about the work that about the point that the work we're doing is about transforming communities. For me, it's not about transforming the academy or uh, education, educational institutions. It's also making a distinction between knowledge, knowledges and wisdom. And I think wisdom is what we need more of, you know, not coherent arguments for X, right? But how do we understand the world when all its complexity, all its contradiction, so that we can create something better, while at the same time, part of our, the wisdom is a, 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 a memory project. What do we need to remember, right, about our past, about traditions that can help us move uh, to, the, to the future? So that's, that's how I'm thinking about curriculum. Thank you. Um, Brian, would you like to respond? Please? Uh, not. Uh, yes, I, I would like to say something, but it's more of a response to an issue you raised earlier around reparations. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I, I think some clarification is, order there, is in order there. My position yes, mm -hmm. is uh, one which is uh, probably more comfortable with being in the university than other speakers, and that should have become clear. So that's point number one. But I think point number two, around the issue of reparations, I agree with my friend Kehinde that the case has been around long before it was taken up in universities. I do want to say, though, that the actual framing and building up an evidential case, because it's wanting to ask for reparations, but a claim for reparations, which is actionable, is going to be required to be packaged up in a particular 
discursive framework, like it or not. Yes, um, it is going to require a great deal of evidence, detailed evidence in terms of costing the project that Catherine Hall headed up, which was able to link the owners of uh, slave plantations in the English Caribbean to the generation of wealth in Britain. That was absolutely essential and the kind of work that uh, Hilary Beckles has done as well. Um, it's important to build up an evidential base and it's theoretically possible to do that in an activist space, but I don't know if it's actually possible so to do. Working with what we have and where we are, we have been able to do something that hadn't been done before. Now have a detailed evidential base, which many people who know about these matters more than I do mm -hmm. think is theoretically actionable in court. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm not sure how we could have. I think that's a worthy aim, and I don't see how we could have got to it other than going through the existing university structures. Mm -hmm. So I hope I wanted to clear that up. I hope that that answered your query, which I think was a very well, um, it was very well spotted on your part. So I hope that cleared it up. Thank you. It uh, it does, and and just as a as a kind of piece of um, anecdotal information or structural information, when we set up the decolonizing working group at SOAS, um, and we um, uh, f formulated the vision one of the problematic categories in the vision was reparations that we had to take out in order for the vision to be embedded in the institutional structure. I hope it's a conversation that we will be able to pick up again, but it, precisely because it runs into all those, those problems that you've described there. Worrying, very worrying. <laughs> Over to Kehinde. For and, and I, I wanted to go back to the question that you asked about uh, students and uh, decolonizing the curriculum, if that's the language that we're using. I agree with Margot, and my experience as a student and then as faculty in higher ed institutions, students demand and often succeed in uh, bringing in certain topics and discussions. Also true is, in my experience in the US, white students demand that faculty like me be fired and demoted for teaching the way I do and for saying the things I say. So when I say students, I also wanna be able to remember, I want us to remember that students also carry with them the backgrounds, the histories and the social locations and are defending certain interests over others. So sometimes in my class, when I open the very first class, I can see which students are shrinking in their chairs and go and write emails and uh, call me names and demand that I be fired. And I can see physically which students sit up and realize this is the class when we're actually gonna discuss anti-black racism. So when we say students, just like faculty, uh, students are invested in academia in different ways and the same with faculty. For some of us, we are jumping from one institution to the other because after they discover who we are, they no longer want to hire us. We are adjunct and some of us, I did not play the game of going for tenure. I don't have the patience, and which means that I always play in what Eileen de los Reyes calls pockets of hope, creating that opportunity in what I call the areas of neglect when they don't pay attention. An adjunct faculty teaching a course on social context of education, by the time they realize what the work is happening, 
they tell me that they no longer have money for my course, right? So for me, part of it is I am not invested in a career. I am invested in actual teaching. And faculty make decisions. It's not that faculty don't have a choice. Some people have more privilege than others, but we as faculty get to decide where our compass is. Their compass is profit and white supremacy. What is ours? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jamila. I think you've brought back that uh, conversation about how the university is funded as a neoliberal space and to what extent it allows the circulation of knowledge and um, and promotes precarity and um, and sort of stops critical thinking as part of the process. So Kahinde, over to you, please. Um, yeah, and I think I just think some of the like, for example, the fact that you had to take reparations out of your decolonial. <laughs> I mean, just again, these things make the point, right? Like these universities aren't serious. They're using the term What did Malcolm say fifty years ago? So people are using this word revolutionary uh, too loosely. And this is exactly how the institutions, I know for us, we know what we mean, but institutions are taking it lightly. It's a joke for them. This is just something for PR purposes. They're not a serious thing. And again, this comes to the point, and, and, and again, the stu- on a student point, but the students, definitely in the States, definitely here, have been really key in pushing this. But the students aren't perfect, and the students um, have many reasons for doing this. And if you look, you look at a lot of the student demands, they're more about diversifying, which again is fine. It, it makes sense. They don't have black teachers. They don't hear anything about black people. I get, I get it. But that's a, a diversity project, not a decolonization project. Often, if we're honest about what the students are looking for, and, I, and again, I really push back on this and say, actually, it's not knowledge that needs to be decolonized because there's plenty of knowledge. We just don't respect it. What we're saying is university knowledge needs to be decolonized. And the question I'm posing is why, if we accept the university is the problem. And the mechanism check of change outside of the university, why don't we just focus on, on doing that rather than trying to change these institutions? And again, it's a, it's a, as, a, as I work on I understand that it sounds a bit hypocritical, but I think for me, that's the real question here. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's um, great to hear with regards to, you know, how sort of the institution itself is part of the problem. So can you decolonize something that is embedded itself in that very process? And, and I absolutely agree with you with regards to decolonizing becoming a little bit of a buzzword with institutional structures uh, to to kind of in um, i mean i'm not saying that that's the case here completely because we are obviously working on the ground and i see it very much as a grassroots type of uh, movement within the university as well and a presence that allows student voices and staff voices to come together in a space that is egalitarian but it's 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 a struggle that we have to um it's a dialogue it's a dialogue and we're and we're dealing with with structures of management in the neoliberal organization that that sort of shut dissent uh quite a lot um shut down dissent quite a lot and shut down dialogue quite a lot i think dialogue is is very very important as we go forward so uh, there are lots of questions that are popping up in the q a this 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 group that is listening is is fantastic the chat is going wild uh, uh, and I am going to pick these up. I'm just going to ask you one more question before I open it up. Uh, and that is the question that divides everyone. Uh, do you think it is important to talk about white privilege? Indeed, what does it mean? And um, Brian, this time, could we start with you? Yes, I'm um, hearing me okay? 
Yes. Yes. Uh, I want to I want to respond to that by reading a quote mm -hmm. from uh, Lewis Gordon, the Fanon scholar. So I'm quoting from Gordon here. So yeah, I came ready with my quote. Gordon writes, a privilege is something that not everyone needs, but a right is the opposite. Given this distinction, an insidious dimension of the white privilege argument emerges. It requires condemning whites for possessing in the concrete features of contemporary life that should be available to all. And if this is correct, how can whites be expected to give up such things? Now, I read Gordon as pointing us in a very important direction here, which is to say that uh, what is often discussed in terms of white privilege would be much more usefully discussed in terms of a failure to guarantee basic human rights. So it's not a privilege that white people are better treated by the police. It's, it, it's, it, it's a failure of our society to guarantee fair and equal treatment of everybody you know, in, in, in the hands of the forces of law enforcement. So I see the polemical value of the term white privilege. Mm -hmm. I think it is not as useful strategically or epistemologically as some might think. Okay. Uh, Margot, could I invite you to join? Yes, uh, I'm, <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think for the first time here with, um, <laughs> with Brian. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, you know, and I think it's important to put this concept in a, in a, in a context. Um, I'm very critical of this idea of white privilege, whiteness studies. There's been a whole industry built up around you know, um, this, this whiteness business. So I'm skeptical, Brian, to your point about that. Uh, and um, it is not useful. Uh, and yeah, I'll just leave it. I agree uh, with Gordon and, and your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Margot Kahinde. We Hello. can't hear you. Oh, sorry. I just, um, um, well, look, I just prefer white supremacy. Probably, probably more useful than white privilege. I mean, I think white privilege is Tends to, tends to be something which people pick up as being an individual thing, it's individual benefit. And whiteness isn't about that, right? Whiteness is about the systemic privileges, which certainly exist. I mean, I think it'd be unlikely, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be even problematic to argue white privilege isn't a thing. Whether that's the way that you frame it, I'd, I'd probably say it doesn't help because it just gives that individual. I was having a debate the other day and they were like, well, oh, these, poor, these poor white kids, they don't understand, they're, they're being told that they had privilege, but they're poor. It's like, that's not really the point, right? The point is the system of white supremacy. So there to talk about white supremacy, I think. Maybe it's okay, thank you. Um, Jamila? Uh, yes, I, um, I kind of agree and have things to add. Uh, yes, uh, white privilege at some point, I understood it as white people having things way more than they need because they stole it from indigenous people and from black people. So in some ways, uh, it is a privilege that they should not uh, be allowed to keep. I don't think it's uh, exclusion. It, it is mutually exclusive with the conversation about rights to what you're saying, Brian, that yes, the police treating white people better, uh, this is a basic uh, human right. At the same time, the accumulation of wealth that came out of uh, land theft and uh, enslavement this, this is a conversation that needs to happen. This is not a right that everybody has. And for me, this is when I connected to the question of reparations. 
because there is there needs to be some sort of distribution, redistribution of wealth as part of a decolonizing process. In terms of white supremacy, I always add to it the word mythology, because I don't want white people to believe that they are actually supreme. So I count white supremacy as part of the mythologies based on which white people um, uh, function in, in, in life, in, at least in the United States, which is what I know. Now, uh, I do discuss whiteness for a very concrete reason, is because whiteness, like any other form of power, renders itself invisible and therefore becomes equivalent to human. So then we only talk about those of us who are not white, and then the reference point that goes always unnamed and unmentioned is the white person. So I insist on naming it as part of disempowering its invisibility that then allows it to become equivalent to normal. White is the norm. So we say, I have a black teacher, and then I say, I have a teacher. So I insist on naming it, maybe not going into the industrialization of it that Margot, you mentioned, where now white people are writing books about their guilt and how they've discovered their whiteness and they are becoming wealthy all over again. I'm not, I'm not interested in indulging that, but I think it is important to name it because over centuries and academia played a very important role in the language and the concepts in equating white to human and white becomes the norm against which all of us, indigenous, black, etc., are judged. So I, I, I name it without indulging it. Okay, thank you, uh, Jamila, for that very um, impassioned definition. And I think what emerges from everyone's responses is, is precisely that confusion that exists around white privilege, um, around whether it's, it's a moral question or it's a question, whether it's a structural question about rights. And I think that, that we get lost in that process. And it is where you have the equivalence sometimes of non-equivalence of terms like whiteness and blackness, you know, what, to what extent are they being used? So it, it's really interesting to hear the debate and the conversation. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, white privilege is, is something that I can participate in as a brown person as much, right, as, as a white person. So it's not about um, identity politics in quite the way that it becomes understood in a defensive reaction to it uh, from, from the readings that I've done around it. Uh, but, but yes, I, I take on the point about the white supremacy as well that that Kehinde sort of made. And, and it was very helpful to have the, the quotation from Lewis Gordon and, and the, um, and I think, yes, we have in this conversation, we are talking across polemic and philosophy, activism and, uh, and scholarship. So all those things have to be brought into play together. Uh, okay, so I am now going to open up the Q&A box. And if it's okay with the panelists, I will read out the questions. And um, can the tech team just remind me when the poll is, we need to open the poll that that sort of uh, is our second part of the debate, where people put their views across as I'm reading the questions. Um, so there's a question from Dinesh who says, does decolonizing not create polarization, a new version of colonization again? 
Um, and, and debaters, if you could just pick up the question that you would like to respond to, that would be great. Uh, Redat says, what is the role of the language that has been one of the conditions to get scholarship in reinforcing the colonialism? And um, the, Engl the, the, the question continues, the English have been the gates for those who speak it to get scholarship and millions of people who deserve these scholarships never get it because of the language. So I think that's a question about the exclusionary um, uh, power of the English language. Uh, there's a question of Idris Haggai. I'd like to ask the panel the following question. What do you make of the argument made by Tuck and Kay Wei Wayne Yang in 2012 about academia turning the concept of decolonization into a metaphor when talking about universities, schools, curricula, and so forth. Um, a question from Riyad Gemor. Thanks, Jamila, for your openness and transparency. Not many would tell such things to students. Unfortunately, when you were speaking, I felt angry at how universities function in the neoliberal and imperial world. I just want to know in your view, what would be the role of students now in relation to what you have shared with us? And perhaps how can I transform this anger into a strategy, maybe? Um, and, and, you know, thank you for a brilliant provocation. From Lindsay Horner, if the academy is inherently part of the colonial project in the Western university tradition, then do we have to be more honest about this question and actually ask in order to decolonize, do we actually need to deconstruct and what is the difference? I think the, the panel has been kind of going through some of that. Katie, if the university cannot be decolonized or even if it can, what are the members of the panel's views on whether it should be replaced with something else and what that might be? From Prothim Sharma, in the transition from colonization to decolonization of higher education, do we see knowledge as a free commodity? What about private universities and the corporate connection? I will stop at that. I will ask the um, panelists to respond, if possible, uh, with two-minute responses, if that's, if that's not too much pressure, to the question that you would like to can we make these our closing comments or will we have time uh, for closing comments? Um, that's a very good time. question. Yes. Why don't we, we have some more questions? Closing? Okay. Cause we have, so we shall I have... read out the rest of the questions as well in that case? Yeah. Um, I, we, I just want to get the time, the process. Okay. We have about 10 minutes left, correct? 15 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So that's if, okay. if you can make this the first part of your closing comments, and then I'll read some more questions as the second part of your closing comments. Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. But I'm not going first. <laughs> okay. All right. So who, I'll, I'll um, go first then. Okay. Shall All I right. Thanks. Yes, please. Okay. Um, it, it will surprise, I think it will now surprise nobody that I'm going to make something of a defense of the university. Should we replace it? It's not clear with what. And in answer to, I'm, I'm thinking of two questions here. Um, there's, there's the personal ethics of working in a university. Um, the, the, I feel there is, it's important to recognize that there is value in showing up, meeting the needs of our students. Some of these are very practical needs. And it's one thing to have a philosophical 
um, and a political critique of universities, but there's also the matter of, and I think we've all had this experience of a student who may not have been well prepared for university contacting us later on, talking about how the experience changed their life. Yes. So um, I feel the, I don't want to devalue the vocation. I think it's still a worthwhile vocation. Um, the university is a flawed institution. It's like liberal democracy, isn't it? Or a bit like the way trade unions work, or a bit like the way markets don't, don't get regulated well. We are where we are. Um, let's, let's, given that the reason that we're all having this conversation that we're connected to universities suggests that we all think there's some values in it. And I feel it's really important that uh, we not rush to overturn or to overthrow an institution, the value of which we haven't fully thought how we might recapture and repurpose. Okay, thank you, Brian. Um, who would like to go next? I feel a bit like this is my classroom and I'm calling on. <laughs> <laughs> we should go hands up. <laughs> and everybody steps back. <laughs> sure. Um, Kahinde, would you like to go next? Uh, yeah, so I don't want to go next. Um, this is a question about, you know, there's a lot of questions around can we just get out of the university, right? But that seems to be, seems to have been arguing for that quite strongly as well. I mean, I think one of the things I would say is that my main push here is let's stop talking about decolonizing something that can't be decolonized. And let's be realistic about what you can do, which is you can diversify it, you can have some reforms into it. But that term decolonization, if, if we're serious about what that means, that, that, that is a social process. That's about structure. That's about saying that actually the reason the university looks like the way that it looks is because it's produced by a society that's based on the principles it's based on. And so decolonize, you can't decolonize university without decolonizing the society. Literally impossible. And what I'm, what I'm trying to push here is that knowledge to decolonize the society is not going to come from university. It's impossible because of what the university is. And there is a whole body of knowledge um, that's been brought up, built up over centuries, still exists today, that we should be nurturing that gives us different ways to understand how the society should work and therefore the university should work. And one of my worries is that in trying to do that within these terrible spaces, we actually don't nurture the radical spaces which knowledge can come from. I think that, that that's that's what I worry. Like, where's where's the and I say I love Malcolm X. Where's the next Malcolm coming from? Where's the Black Panther Party coming? Where's the next Claudia Jones coming from? For all in these institutions, it's never going to happen, right? So I, I do generally worry about this. That we should be nurturing the, the those legacies of, of education which are outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so I think in that in that response, Kahinda, you've actually responded to Lydia Hiraidi's question: Should the university be abandoned? Should we be trying to imagine something entirely new, an anti-university pluriversity? Is that possible? So I'll I'll sort of put that out there. Um, Jamila, I um, I am not ready to give up. I don't need to have the answer, but I know my rights. Mm -hmm. And I know that we as human beings deserve knowledge and wisdom, and that we deserve and have the right to come together, produce knowledge that improves our lives, learn from the experience and theorize again to engage in practice. I don't necessarily have a plan A to Z, and I'm not necessarily um, 
committed to the academy per se, but I am not ready to give up the right to produce and create knowledge beyond the individual. Malcolm X is also one of my, I call them my intellectual family. Um, so I, uh, maybe that's one of the things I agree thoroughly with you. Uh, and I am for creating spaces that do not necessarily pretend to replace academia. I do ask of my students and of my colleagues, let's just be honest. Do not tell me that what you're doing in your position is radical when you are accepting one, two, three, four, five, six, because I don't know what you think is going to happen. Some of us are and can, some of us are not and cannot be radical. And I am perfectly okay. I do not think revolutions happen overnight. And I think decolonization, just like it happened over centuries, it's going to take centuries for us to heal the world from it. As a starting point, I continue doing what I describe as, uh, as Eileen said, pockets of hope in whichever institutions I can, and linking as much as possible the work within academia with the actual communities. I would not trust academia to discuss, which I know that some universities are, the Palestinian right of return. It's being discussed by academics and universities. I do not trust that they're gonna produce anything that's gonna be worthy. I do, I also know, I don't have the power to stop them from doing that, but nothing stops me from having conversations with my community about the right of return and trying to articulate what we want, even when we cannot impose it and even when we don't have the power. So at least we have a clear position in a dialogue that comes from the academy through their military, trying to impose such decisions on us, whether it's reparations or right of, ret of return or return of the land or protecting the water in the United States, all of these things. My, my point is I cannot stop academia, but I can, and I agree with argue with, with Marco, I can use whatever resources available to me to benefit my community. I still continue theorizing with my people in our way, based on our ancestors' wisdom. Thank you, Jamila. Margot? Uh, I think this is a both-and moment. For me, The um, it's not a matter of, do we get rid of the academy, replace it with something else? It's both-and. The academy can be useful. We just need to figure out in which ways it can be useful. I'm much more interested in the question of what is the purpose of higher education, of uh, education altogether, right? And how will that purpose help us create the world we want to create, right? And for me, that means that these institutions can serve as a place where we can commit to certain kinds of um, knowledge production, and certain kinds of um, uh, deepening relationships that will help us come to some basic principles about a society we want to create or societies we want to create. And then I think the educational institution, the educational project, not schooling, the educational project then has to help us think about what kind of human beings must we become so that when we create that place, right, 
that we're not going to mess it up and reproduce the same thing that we tried to change. So the bigger educational project for me at this point, I'm retired from the academy, thank goodness, you know, last May. And but I've always had this position is what is the world we're trying to create? Right. And how what is the role of deepening relationships to one another, wisdom, to knowledges, you know, and all of that. Right. So and to this point, what role can the, uh, the academy higher educational institutions play in it? And I will just uh, end with this quote, um, which uh, by uh, Amilcar Cabral, you know, and he said, always bear in mind that people are not fighting for ideas, for things in anyone's heads, that includes ours. <laughs> they are fighting to win material benefits, live better and in peace, and to see their lives go forward to guarantee the future of their children. And I think that's fundamentally what I'm talking about here. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for making very clear the positionalities that you're talking about. And, and you've uh, led us through some measured and rig rigorous arguments. So this is the perfect time to put the poll back on, on decolonization of higher education is possible. So the House, the debate question, does this House now believe decolonization of education is possible? The options are yes, neutral, no. While people vote, I'm going to read out some more questions and some comments from the chat box, but just, just because this is a debate about decolonizing, so I think we should let the people's voices populate the ending as, well, as much as ours. And there are, I, I want to thank everyone for such an in, um, interactive engagement with the panel. So I'll pick up a couple of things from the chat box. Uh, there's something from uh, one of our, um, so as, um, <clears throat> Centers and Institute, uh, Institute's um, managers, who is also a very important part of the SOAS Festival of Ideas, Angelica Bashiero, who says, SOAS did a review of African studies and Africa curriculum review led by a SOAS radical academic and by a radical researcher. Do you think that such a review will have an impact in terms of change or is it another tick box exercise? A lot of examples seem to be tokenism or box ticking, but I believe in the role of radicals to at least push some boundaries. So I think, Angelica, you've answered that question. Um, and um, there are questions in the Q&A box about the one from Maliha Shoeb. There should seems to be a slight difference in arguing that we should decolonize versus arguing that we can decolonize once we accept that the university is fundamentally a colonial institution, what are the actual practical steps we can take to decolonize? Adele says, um, Professor Kahinde made a point about the distinction between the school system as a continued project to maintain the status quo, racism and education. So in this context, you know, can education be decolonized? Should we be trying to decolonize the world because of where colonialism has led us to the death of species led by mainly white men? Is the havoc, Pervez says, that left behind by colonization still not evidence enough to think of decolonization in academics? Um, and apologies, I should have said the anonymous attendee was, was making the point about should we, try, should we be trying to decolonize the world because of where colonialism has led us? Um, <clears throat> uh, Nora Wutke says, Jamila gave a clear definition of what decolonization means to for her. I would be interested to hear what decolonization means for all panelists. I think um, 
that that's been debated quite fiercely um, and uh, some great questions and um, and there are some confusions about what decolonization looks like and delinking is not mentioned in the debate is that what the radical politics of decolonization requires so we have um, a lot of questions we have uh, answers um, and we have some comments um, in the chat box that I would invite you to read as as your um looking through and waiting for the final results of the debate and um there are some answers also from our panelists and if if the panelists want to put, put any answers to the questions that have cropped up um please feel free to put that in there so um we have two minutes left and our next event is the uh, wonderful butcher boulevard performance of decolonizing not Deep, not just a buzzword, which is a campus play about SOAS conversations across students and academics, followed by a panel discussion. So if, if your appetite has been whetted by this debate, please just seamlessly um, link on to that particular event um, and the play, which will last for an hour, followed by a discussion by an hour. And then we have our final um, event, which is a wonderful conversation on race, writing and difference, which will take place this evening from 7.30 to 9. So we have the results of the poll. It is uh, 4.59 uh, and I can uh, announce this. Decolonization of education is possible. 62% say yes. So it seems to have gone up and neutral is 14%. So the neutral votes have gone down and the no vote is 25%. So I think, um, I, can I just be reminded of what we started with? Tech team, please. Um, okay, so they, they will put the, the start results in, in the chat box as well. Thank you. Okay, um, the, the start was 58% yes, 20% neutral, and no, 23%. Okay, all right. So it remains for me to thank my wonderful panelists for such a convivial and engaging, wide-ranging debate. We've talked from things across the civil rights movement. I know we haven't talked about it, but, but you know, we've, we've mentioned people central to it, and we've talked about scholarship and the importance of scholarship, and we've talked about decolonizing as a project which cannot only be located in the ivory tower of the university, but has to be a society-wide project for it to be meaningful. So thank you everyone and uh, to all the attendees who've been following the SOAS Festival of Ideas. It's been a learning experience for me. I'm, I have learned hugely from everyone. I am so grateful to all of you, to my colleagues at SOAS, to all the speakers. And um, also I would like to thank Haley Shaloub for suggesting Jamila who has joined us uh, as um, very kindly because um, we had one panelist who couldn't join us. So thank you, thank you everyone. And I wish you a very good Saturday. But we have one more, one last thing we're doing together. Okay. Since we worked our brains. Remember? Oh yes, music, music. So, yes. Okay, so I want everybody to get up. We've been sitting in front of the this uh, uh, computer. So uh, we're gonna dance together. It's okay. time to dance. Okay. So get ready. <laughs> okay. So dance your way into decolonizing, not just a buzzword. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I hope you're ready and I hope um, we can have a little bit of fun here as well.
Keep your distance, please. Come through, long and dance with a smile. 